fast asleep with Gina Marie. Hi, I'm Gina. Marie's busy right now. How has your day been? I hope very well. And if not, let's get it there. You are here for a classic short story from a classic author, and it's actually literature, not a waste of your time. Please remember to keep us here for you. Be sure to like, comment, and subscribe. And don't forget to drop in the keyword at the end of the episode. Thanks. This week, we are here for the conclusion of our Joyce Carol Oates story. If you have not heard last week's episode, you'll want to do that now. And then you'll be able to catch up a little bit on our author. Last week, we alerted you to her mention of suicide. Very important. And the crisis hotline here in the U.S. is just 988. Well, what we didn't prepare you for was the setting. No, we did not. 1972 and the sexual revolution. Ah, geez. I never had to read the word lover aloud so many times. Okay, I know. Late 60s, 70s, it was a time of sexual liberation. Here we go. It was a social movement that challenged tradition and codes of behavior in all cultures and all age groups. Ooh. Well, okay. An older relative told me that if you weren't cheating on your spouse, you were in the minority. It, it wasn't even considered cheating. It was expected. Wow. I say peace, love, and pass the antibiotics. Um, okay, now you can consider yourself better prepared for today's episode, I guess. Um, next part, the Chekhov connection. We promised you a little more information. Joyce Carol Oates deliberately tied this story of hers to Chekhov's. The titles are almost identical. The main characters share the same names. And both stories, of course, involve love affairs. Fate brings the lovers together in one story and keeps the lovers apart in another. Though, Ms. Oates circles, boy does she, back to repeat events in this story, giving us new details each time. Here's a quick recap from last week. So, Anna is questioning both her marriage and her relationship with her lover. We left off as she's preparing to leave his hotel room, and she has a shocking thought. Well, here we go. Tuck in, everybody, for the conclusion of Joyce Carol Oates, The Lady with the Pet Dog.
she thought. Suddenly, I will follow you back and kill you. You and her and the little boy. What is there to stop me? She left him. Everyone on the street pitied her. That look of absolute zero. Part three. A man and a child approaching her. The sharp, acrid smell of fish. The crashing of waves. Anna pretended not to notice the father with his son. There was something strange about them. That frank, silent intimacy. Too gentle. The man's bare feet in the water. And the boy, a few feet away, leaning away from his father. He was about nine years old and Still his father held his hand. A small yipping dog, a golden dog, bounded near them. Anna turned shyly back to her reading. She did not want to have to speak to these neighbors. She saw the man's shadow falling over her legs and then over the pages of her book. And she had the idea that he wanted to see what she was reading. The dog nuzzled her. The man called him away. She watched them walk down the beach. She was relieved that the man had not spoken to her. She saw them in town later that day, the two of them brown-haired and patient, now wearing sandals, walking with that same look of care. The man's white shorts were soiled and a little baggy. His pullover shirt was a faded green. His face was broad, the cheekbones wide, spaced widely apart. The eyes stark in their sockets, as if they fastened onto objects for no reason, ponderous and edgy. The little boy's face was pale and sharp. His lips were perpetually parted. Anna realized that the child was blind. The next morning, early. Oh, she caught sight of them again. For some reason, she went to the back door of her cottage. She faced the sea breeze eagerly. Her heart hammered. She had been here in her family's old house for three days alone, bitterly satisfied at being alone. And now it was a puzzle to her how her soul strained to fly outward to meet with another person. She watched the man with his son, his cautious, rather stooped shoulders above the child's small shoulders. The man was carrying something. It looked like a notebook. He sat on the sand, not far from Anna's spot of the day before, and the dog rushed up to them. The child approached the edge of the ocean timidly, He moved in short, jerky steps, his legs stiff. The dog ran around him. Anna heard the child crying out a word that sounded like 
Ty? It must have been the dog's name. And then the man joined in, his voice heavy and firm. Ty. Anna tied her hair back with a yellow scarf and went down to the beach. The man glanced around at her. He smiled. She stared past him at the waves. To talk to him or not to talk. She had the freedom of that choice. For a moment she felt that she had made a mistake, that the child and the dog would not protect her, that behind this man's ordinary friendly face there was a certain arrogant maleness. Then she relented. She smiled shyly. Nice house you've got there, the man said. She nodded her thanks. The man pushed his sunglasses up on his forehead. Yes, she recognized the eyes of the day before, intelligent and nervous, the sockets pale, untanned. Was that your telephone ringing? He said. She did not bother to listen. It's a wrong number, she said. Her husband calling. She had left home for a few days to be alone. But the man, settling himself on the sand, seemed to misinterpret this. He smiled in surprise, one corner of his mouth higher than the other. He said nothing. Anna wondered, what is he thinking? The dog was leaping about her, panting against her legs, and she laughed in embarrassment. She bent to pet it, grateful for its busyness. Now don't let him jump up on you, the man said. Oh, he's a nuisance. The dog was a small golden retriever, a young dog. The blind child standing now in the water turned to call the dog to him. His voice was shrill and impatient. Our house is the third one down, the white one, the man said. She turned, startled. Oh, did you buy it from Dr. Patrick? Did he die? Yes, finally. Her eyes wandered nervously over the child and the dog. <laughs> she felt the nervous beat of her heart out to the very tips of her fingers, the fleshy tips of her fingers. Little hearts were there pulsing. What is he thinking? The man had opened his notebook. He had a piece of charcoal and he began to sketch something. Anna looked down at him. She saw the top of his head, his thick brown hair, the freckles on his shoulders, the quick deft movement of his hand. Upside down, Anna herself being drawn. She smiled in surprise. Let me draw you, sit down, he said. She knelt awkwardly a few yards away. He turned the page of the sketch pad. The dog ran to her and she sat, straightening out her skirt beneath her and flinching from the dog's tongue. Ty! cried the child. Anna sat and slowly the pleasure of the moment began to glow in her. Her skin flushed with gratitude. 
She sat there for nearly an hour. The man did not talk much. Back and forth the dog bounded, shaking itself. The child came to sit near them in silence. Anna felt that she was drifting into a kind of trance while the man sketched her. Half a dozen rapid sketches. The surface of her face given up to him. Where are you from? The man asked. Ohio. My husband lives in Ohio. She wore no wedding band. Your wife? Anna began. Yes. Is she here? No, not right now. She was silent, ashamed. She had asked an improper question, but the man did not seem to notice. He continued drawing her, bent over the sketch pad. When Anna said she had to go, he showed her the drawings, one after another of her, Anna, recognizably Anna, a woman in her early 30s, her hair smooth and flat across the top of her head, tied behind by a scarf. Uh, take, take the one you like best, he said. And she picked one of her with the dog in her lap, sitting very straight, her brows and eyes clearly defined, her lips girlishly pursed. The dog and her dress suggested by a few quick, irregular lines. Lady with pet dog, the man said. She spent the rest of that day reading nearer her cottage. It was not really a cottage. It was a two-story house, large and ungainly and weathered. It was mixed up in her mind with her family, her own childhood, she glanced up from her book, perplexed, as if waiting for one of her parents or her sister to come up to her. Then she thought of that man, the man with the blind child, the man with the dog, and she could not concentrate on her reading. Someone, probably her father, had marked a passage must be important, but oh, she kept reading and rereading it. We try to discover in things endeared to us on that account the spiritual glamour which we ourselves have cast upon them. We are disillusioned and learn that they are in themselves barren and devoid of the charm that they owed, in our minds, to the association of certain ideas. Mm. She thought again of the man on the beach. She laid the book aside and thought of him. His eyes, his aloneness, his drawings of her. They began seeing each other after that. He came to the front door in the evening. Without the child, he drove her into town for dinner. She was shy and extremely pleased. The darkness of the expensive restaurant released her. 
She heard herself chatter. She leaned forward and seemed to be offering her face up to him, listening to him. He talked about his work on a Long Island newspaper, and she seemed to be listening to him as she stared at his face, arranging her own face into the expression she had seen in that charcoal drawing. Did he see her like that then? Girlish and withdrawn and patrician. She felt the weight of his interest in her, a force that fell upon her like a blow, a repeated blow. Of course, he was married. He had children. Of course, she was married, permanently married. This flight from her husband was not important. She had left him before to be alone. It was not important. Everything in her life was slender and delicate and not important. They walked for hours after dinner, looking at the other strollers, the weekend visitors, the tourists, the couples, like themselves. Surely they were mistaken for a couple, a married couple. Hmm. This is the hour in which everything is decided, Anna thought. They both had had several drinks and they talked a great deal. Anna found herself saying too much, stopping and starting giddily. She put her hand to her forehead, feeling faint. Mm, it's from the sun. You've had too much sun, he said. At the door to her cottage on the front porch, she heard herself asking him if he would like to come in. Stay with us. We'll be right back. On the front porch, she heard herself asking him if he would like to come in. She allowed him to lead her inside to close the door. This is not important, she thought, clearly. He doesn't mean it. He doesn't love me. Nothing will come of it. She was frightened, yet it seemed to her necessary to give in. She had to leave Nantucket with that act completed, an act of adultery, 
an accomplishment she would take back to Ohio and to her marriage. Later, incredibly, she heard herself asking, Do you? Do you love me? You're so beautiful, he said, amazed. She felt this beauty, shy and glowing and centered in her eyes. He stared at her in this large drafty house alone, together. They were like accomplices, conspirators. She could not think how old was she? Which year was this? They had done something unforgivable together. And the knowledge of it was tugging at their faces. A cloud seemed to pass over her. She felt herself smiling shrilly. Afterward, a peculiar raspiness, a dryness of breath. He was silent. She felt a strange, idle fear, a sense of the danger outside this room and this old comfortable bed, a danger that would not recognize her as the lady in that drawing, the lady with the pet dog. There was nothing to say to this man, this stranger, and she felt the beauty draining out of her face, her eyes fading. I've got to be alone, she told him, and he left, and she understood that she would not see him again. She stood by the window of the room, watching the ocean. A sense of shame overpowered her. It was smeared everywhere on her body. The smell of it, the richness of it. She tried to recall him and his face was confused in her memory. She would have to shout to him across a jumbled space. She would have to wave her arms wildly. You love me. You must love me. But she knew he did not love her and she did not love him. He was a man who drew everything up into himself, like all men, walking away, free to walk away, free to have his own thoughts, free to envision her body, all the secrets of her body. And she lay down again in the bed, feeling how heavy this body had become her insides heavy with shame, the very backs of her eyelids coated with shame. This is the end of one part of my life, she thought. But in the morning, 
the telephone rang. She answered it. It was her lover. They talked brightly and happily. She could hear the eagerness in his voice, the love in his voice, that same still, sad amazement. Oh, she understood how simple life was. There were no problems. They spent most of their time on the beach with the child and the dog. He joked and was serious at the same time. He said once, you have defined my soul for me. And she laughed to hide her alarm. In a few days, it was time for her to leave. He got a sitter for the boy and took the ferry with her to the mainland. Then rented a car to drive her up to Albany. She kept thinking, now something will happen. It will come to an end. But most of the drive was silent and hypnotic. She wanted him to joke with her, to say again that she had defined his soul for him. But he drove fast, he was serious. She distrusted the hawkish look of his profile. She did not know him at all. At a gas station, she splashed her face with cold water. Alone, in the grubby little restroom, shaky and very much alone. In such places are women totally alone with their bodies. The body grows heavier and more evil in such silence. On the beach, everything had been noisy with sunlight and gulls and waves. Here, as if run to earth, everything was cramped and silent and dead. She went outside squinting, and there he was, talking with the station attendant. She could not think, as she returned to him, whether she wanted to live or not. She stayed in Albany for a few days, and then flew home to her husband. He met her at the airport near the luggage counter where her three pieces of pale brown luggage were brought to him on a conveyor belt to be claimed by him. He kissed her on the cheek. They shook hands, a little embarrassed. She had come home again. How will I live out the rest of my life? She wondered. In January, her lover spied on her. She glanced up and saw him in a public place in the DeRoy Symphony Hall. She was paralyzed with fear. She nearly fainted. In this faint, she felt her husband's body loving her, working its love upon her. And she shut her eyes harder to keep out the certainty of his love. Sometimes he failed at loving her. Sometimes he succeeded. It 
had nothing to do with her or her pity or her 10 years of love for him. It had nothing to do with the woman at all. It was a private act accomplished by a man, a husband or a lover, in communion with his own soul, his manhood. Her husband was 42 years old now, growing slowly into middle age, getting heavier and softer. Her lover was about the same age, narrower in the shoulders, with a full solid chest, yet lean, nervous. She thought in her paralysis of men and how they love freely and eagerly, so long as their bodies are capable of love, love for a woman, and then as love fades in their bodies, it fades from their souls and they become immune and immortal and ready to die. Her husband was a little rough with her, as if impatient with himself. I love you, he said fiercely, angrily. And then, ashamed, he said, Did I hurt you? You didn't hurt me, she said. Her voice was too shrill for their embrace. While he was in the bathroom, she went to her closet and took out that drawing of the summer before. There she was, on the beach at Nantucket, a lady with a pet dog her eyes large and defined, the dog in her lap hardly more than a few (laughs) snarls, a few coarse, soft lines of charcoal, her dress smeared, her arms oddly limp, her hands not well drawn at all. She tried to think, did she love the man who had drawn this? Did he love her? The fever in her husband's body had touched her and driven her temperature up. And now she stared at the drawing with a kind of lust, fearful of seeing an ugly soul in that woman's face, fearful of seeing the face suddenly through her lover's eyes. She breathed quickly and harshly staring at the drawing. And so, the next day, she went to him at his hotel. She wept, pressing against him, demanding of him. What do you want? Why are you here? And why don't you let me alone? He told her that he wanted nothing. He expected nothing. He would not cause trouble. I want to talk about last August, he said. Don't, she said. She was hypnotized by his gesturing hands, his nervousness, his obvious agitation. He kept saying, 
I understand. I'm making no claims upon you. They became lovers again. He called room service for something to drink, and they sat side by side on his bed, looking through a copy of The New Yorker, laughing at the cartoons. It was so peaceful in this room, so complete. They were on a holiday. It was a secret holiday, 4.30 in the afternoon on a Friday, an ordinary Friday. A secret holiday. I won't bother you again, he said. <laughs> he flew back to see her again in March and in late April. He telephoned her from his hotel, a different hotel each time, and she came to him at once. She rose to him in various elevators. She knocked on the doors of various rooms. She stepped into his embrace, breathless and guilty, and already angry with him, pleading with him. One morning in May, when he telephoned, she pressed her forehead against the door frame and could not speak. He kept saying, what's wrong? Can't you talk? Aren't you alone? She felt that she was going insane. Her head would burst. Why? Why did he love her? Why did he pursue her? Why did he want her to die? She went to him in the hotel room, a familiar room. Had they been here before? Everything is repeating itself. Everything is stuck, she said. He framed her face in his hands and said that she looked thinner. Was she sick? What was wrong? She shook herself free. He, her lover, looked about the same. There was a small angry pimple on his neck. He stared at her eagerly and suspiciously. Did she bring bad news? So, you love me. You love me? She asked. What? Why are you so angry? I want to be free of you. The two of us, free of each other. Well, that isn't true. You don't want that. He embraced her. She was wild with that old familiar passion for him, her body clinging to his, her arms not strong enough to hold him. Ah, what despair, what bitter hatred she felt. She needed this man for her salvation. He was all she had to live for, and yet, she could not believe in him. He embraced her thighs, her hips, kissing her, pressing his warm face against her. And yet, she could not believe in him. Not really. Well, she needed him in order to live. 
but he was not worth her love. He was not worth her dying. She promised herself this when she got back home, when she was alone, she would draw the razor more deeply across her arm. The telephone rang and he answered it. A wrong number. Jesus, he said. They lay together, still. She imagined their posture like this, the two of them, one figure, one substance. And outside this room and this bed, well, there was a universe of disjointed, separate things, blank things, that had nothing to do with them. She would not be Anna out there, the lady in the drawing, and he would not be her lover. I love you so much, she whispered. Please don't cry. We have only a few hours. Please. It was absurd. They're clinging together like this. She saw them as a single figure in a drawing. Their arms and legs entwined. Their heads pressing mutely together. Helpless substance. So heavy and warm and doomed. It was absurd that any human being should be so important to another human being. She wanted to laugh. A laugh might free them both. She could not laugh. Sometime later, he said, as if they had been arguing, look, it's you. You're the one who doesn't want to get married. You lie to me. Lie to you. You love me, but you won't marry me because you want something left over, something not finished. All your life, you can attribute your misery to me, to our not being married. You are using me. Stop it. You'll make me hate you, she cried. You can say to yourself that you're miserable because of me. We will never be married. You will never be happy. Neither one of us will ever be happy. I don't want to hear this, she said. She pressed her hands flatly against her face. She went to the bathroom to get dressed. She washed her face and parts of her body quickly. The fever was in her, in the pit of her belly. She would rush home and strike a razor across the inside of her arm and free that pressure, that fever, the impatient bulging of the veins. An ordeal over. The demand of the telephones ringing, that ordeal over. The nuisance of getting the car and driving and all that five o'clock traffic an ordeal too much for this woman. The movement of this stranger's body in hers, over, finished. Now, dressed, 
a little calmer. They held hands and talked. They had to talk swiftly to get all their news in. He did not trust the people who worked for him. He had no faith. His wife had moved to a textbook publishing company and was doing well. She had inherited a Ben Sean painting from her father and wanted to touch it up a little. Oh, she was crazy. His blind son was at another school doing fairly well. In fact, his children were all doing fairly well in spite of the stupid mistake of their parents' marriage. And what about her? What about her life? She told him in a rush the one thing he wanted to hear, that she lived with her husband lovelessly, the two of them polite strangers, sharing a bed, lying side by side in the night in that bed, bodies out of which souls had fled. There was no longer even any shame between them. And what about me? Do you feel shame with me still? He asked. She did not answer. She moved away from him and prepared to leave. And then, a minute later, she happened to catch sight of his reflection in the bureau mirror. He was glancing down at himself, checking himself, mechanically, impersonally, preparing also to leave. He too would leave this room. He too was headed somewhere else. She stared at him. It seemed to her that in this instant, he was breaking from her the image of her lover fell free of her, breaking from her. And she realized that he existed in a dimension quite apart from her, a mysterious being. And suddenly, joyfully, she felt a miraculous calm. This man was her husband, truly. They were truly married here in this room. They had been married haphazardly and accidentally for a long time. In another part of the city, she had another husband. A husband. But she had not betrayed that man. Not really. This man, whom she loved above any other person in the world, above even her own self-pitying sorrow and her own life, was her truest lover, her destiny. And she did not hate him. She did not hate herself any longer. She did not wish to die. She was flooded with a strange certainty, a sense of gratitude 
of pure, selfless energy. It was obvious to her that she had, all along, been behaving correctly, out of instinct. What triumph! To love like this in any room, anywhere, risking even the craziest of accidents. Why are you so happy? What's wrong? He asked, startled. He stared at her. She felt the abrupt concentration in him, the focusing of his vision on her, almost a bitterness in his face, as if he feared her. What was it beginning all over again? Their love beginning again in spite of them? How can you look so happy? He asked. We don't have any right to it. Is it because... Yes. If you or someone you know is struggling with thoughts of suicide, please reach out. The U.S. Crisis Hotline is just three numbers, 988. Google search can provide worldwide information. Introduction information today came from the Unruly Genius of Joyce Carol Oates by Leo Robson, critic at large for The New Yorker. The music today was Cavatina by John Williams and Sleep Music, Delta Waves. You can reach me at Fast Asleep with Gina Marie 44 at gmail.com or find Fast Asleep with Gina Marie on Instagram or Facebook and please remember to like, comment, or subscribe. Thank you. Keyword Revolution Good night.